This summer, after dozens of people uh, joined together um, uh, in reading groups to discuss Desmond Cole's book, uh, The Skin We're In, the adult education team asked if I would preach a sermon uh, that would serve as kind of a follow-up to the book, which was a look at um, white Canadian society's racism against blacks and other people of color. And so this is that sermon. And what I want to do is, is uh, I'm, I'm going to start with a text. I'll, I'll read it, but then I, I just want to kind of let it simmer with us. And um, we will get to it eventually. So the, the text for this morning is from Exodus chapter 10. Exodus 10, we're in Egypt with the Israelites who are enslaved. They're, they're making bricks without straw under their oppressive uh, slave masters. God has sent uh, Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh uh, to demand their freedom. And when Pharaoh refused, God began sending the great plagues on the land and the people of Egypt, right? Uh, seven plagues have come at this point in the narrative. Um, uh, the, the, the plague of blood, and the river Nile, uh, and then frogs and gnats and flies, the death of the Egyptians' livestock, uh, boils on their skin, and hail. And at this point, Herod's, or, uh, uh, Pharaoh's own officials begged him to call Moses and Aaron back and free the Israelites. And so we turn now to, uh, to Exodus 10, starting at verse 8. Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go, worship the Lord your God, he said, but tell me who will be going. Moses answered, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, The Lord be with you. If I let you go along with your women and children, clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you have been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over Egypt so that locusts swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. The word of the Lord. We live in a world that is deeply divided by racism. Right? We we saw it again uh, this summer. Uh, Worldwide protests. Millions of people pouring into the streets from Minneapolis to Manila, protesting the snuffing out of yet another black life, the homicide of George Floyd. And now his name is added to the growing litany of names that we are called upon to say out loud. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, Trayvon Martin, And on and on and on it goes. Hundreds of names. Names reaching into the unknown names, right? And nameless persons. This goes back, really, centuries. They're American names, right? You see, the temptation for us is to get smug and to wag our finger at this most American of sins, racism. But even a a brief and cursory review of Canadian history tells us that we cannot cast the first stone. 
Desmond Cole recorded all too many examples of homegrown acts of racism against blacks in the skin we're in, from individual acts to systemic oppression. And just this past week, on Monday, Joyce Ichiquan, a 37-year-old indigenous woman, started recording her experience of racism in a Quebec hospital. The video uh, that she broadcast live on Facebook Live records the nurses taunting her as she cries out in pain. One nurse tells her that she's only good for sex. Another tells her she is stupid as hell. And those were the last words that Joyce Ichiquan heard because she died soon after. The video ends when a nurse sees that her cell phone is actually broadcasting and she shuts it off. In Canada, in 2017, 66 people were shot and killed by police in Canada. 25 were indigenous. That means that indigenous people are 10 times more likely to be killed by by a police officer uh, than white people are. Indigenous Canadians are 56% more likely to be victims of crime than other Canadians. See, as a country, we are still struggling to eradicate the systemic racism that was written into law in the Indian Act. Over 120 years, 150,000 indigenous children were taken forcibly from their homes and sent away to residential schools. 6,000 of them died or disappeared. 6,000. That is one in 25 children. Never made it home from a residential school. And that was the logical outcome of the policies and attitudes of government officials such as Duncan, Scott, Duncan Campbell Scott, who was the Deputy Superintendent of Indian Affairs. He wrote this in 1910. It is readily acknowledged that Indian children lose their natural resistance to illness by habituating so closely in the residential schools and that they die at a much higher rate than in their villages. But this alone does not justify a change in the policy of the department, which is geared toward a final solution of our Indian problem. And racism is a legacy we wrestle with in the church. Our church. Years ago, when I was a a student working at Calvin College in the summer, I remember we had an incident at a synod's annual conference for multi-ethnic leaders. A man refused to check into his dorm room when he found out that his roommate for the week would be a black man. That's at the multi-ethnic conference. And this summer, the editor of the banner, Reverend Xiao Chong, wrote a very personal uh, editorial about racism entitled, Seven Thoughts in the Wake of George Floyd. It was a long Uh, uh, It was angry, and it was just brimming with sadness. And as uh, Reverend Jim Decker pointed out in a recent article in the Christian Courier, one-third of the responses to that article were disagreements, detractions, and defenses. And several of those were written by CRC pastors. White CRC pastors. And you know what? I can go on. You know that there is no shortage of these kinds of of illustrations. 
And we know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. Genesis 1 illustrates right from the beginning God's will for our world. God creates a beautiful world, perfect for humanity, and gives us the means and the mandate to flourish. He calls us to to multiply and to fill the earth, to work together as, as stewards of God's garden. It's in Genesis 11 that we see the spread of culture. It happens at Babel. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann sees uh, in the scattering of the peoples at the Tower of Babel, not a curse, but a blessing. God forces them to fill the earth, which is their calling. He's working to to counter a humanity that is bent on self-destructive behavior. And so God's confusion of languages scatters them over the wide world, and the people become peoples. Sharon, uh, Lisa Sharon Harper in The Very Good Gospel puts it this way. They would develop languages, cultures, and worldviews. And each group would experience distinct trials and triumphs and develop core strengths and weaknesses as a result. Their various ethnic heritages would be forged through common experiences of life together. And the good news of God's great glove in Scripture is gospel for all nations. The Apostle Paul taught that Jesus broke down the ethnic hatred that divided Jew from Gentile. Paul said, for he himself, Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. And, and Reverend Chong's editorial highlights Jesus' own passionate and, yes, violent protest of racist policies and practices when the Lord started a one-man riot in the temple courtyard. Jesus and Paul We're articulating a vision like that given to John in Revelation 7. There before me was a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Right? It, is, it is fulfillment of, of old, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah's many prophecies of, of a banquet spread for all nations and foreigners coming to Mount Zion in Jerusalem to be given joy in the Lord's house of prayer. Right? So, so, so there's the reality, what we're living with, but then there's this, this glorious vision of the way God calls for it to be. So, so what now? Well, now we get back to Pharaoh. Exodus 10, uh, well, we must uh, reject Pharaoh's false offer of a way out of Egypt. Exodus 10 gives us a picture of an oppressor at the bargaining table. You know, recall the story, right? Pharaoh has enslaved the Israelites with hard labor. He's refused their freedom. Uh, Worse, he is undoing the creation mandate. Right, to multiply by commanding the Egyptian people to toss the Hebrew boys into the Nile, the waters of chaos. 
in a fitting rebuttal to the one who would defy this creation mandate, God is now bending creation and sending plagues one after another. And hard-hearted Pharaoh bends under that weight and he calls Moses and Aaron back. All right, go, he says. But then he wants to know exactly who's going. Because he's not acceding. He's still bargaining. And Pharaoh offers freedom, but only for some. Only the men can go. The women and children, they have to stay behind. Pharaoh is apparently unfamiliar with the worship that Yahweh will require of his people, that whole families will be found at the feast of the Lord in worship and celebration. And so what he does, he sends them off with sarcasm. Oh yeah, he says, that'll be the day. That'll be the day the Lord is truly with you, the day I let you leave with your wives and children, your flocks and your herds. So Pharaoh, you know, in a way, turns out to be a prophet in his own sarcastic way. So that's the deal, right? That's the deal that Pharaoh has on offer. Some of you can go. You just leave, need to leave your families behind. You think, do you think the men of Israel were tempted? No, of course not. Because this is no offer at all, and Pharaoh knows it. The point of the narrative is that when the oppressors, the empires, the enemy tried to tear God's people apart to divide them against each other, they recognized the danger and they stayed one people. We all leave Egypt or none of us do. We all leave Egypt or none of us do. The destructive forces at work in our world offer the white church the same deal. Pharaoh's offer is still out there, and I am afraid we have taken it. As white people, white citizens, white believers, we are out of Egypt, and we've left our families, we've left our brothers and sisters behind. As, as Sid said last week, White supremacy is not limited to to white hoods and confederate flags that we see on our screens. In her book, White Fragility, author Robin DiAngelo says, White supremacy is more than the idea that whites are superior to people of color. It is the deeper premise that supports this idea. The definition of whites as the norm or the standards for human and people of color are a deviation from that norm. I saw an example of that this morning on my way to church. I glanced at at the cover, at the front page of the Hamilton Spectator. Uh, There was a homicide in the west end of Hamilton, and the police are looking for a a man who's wearing a hoodie. Uh, It's a black and gray hoodie, I think, and gray sweatpants. He had a blue mask on. They're looking just for a man. They're not looking for a black man. They're not looking for an indigenous man. It just said a man. So we all know he's white. Because white's the standard. You don't have to say his race because he doesn't have race. That's white supremacy in, in the most subtle of ways. And it's everywhere when you start looking for it. D'Angelo also points out that many of us have too limited a view of racism. We think that, that racism is like murder. Someone has to commit it in order for it to exist. But racism is a structure, not an event. 
And it's a structure that we have all grown up in. My, myself included. I struggle against my own racist attitudes and assumptions. I know that I struggle with racism. And D'Angelo's book describes what she calls white fragility. That is, our often emotional defense at the suggestion that we might be unwitting participants that benefit from a worldview that is infected with racism. Now, I don't think that white fragility should be a problem for Christians in the Reformed tradition. That's because we teach the doctrine of total depravity. That is, that every single area of our lives has been bent and twisted by the weight of sin. And so our, there's, there's no way that our racial assumptions and identity has survived the fall unscathed. It ought not surprise us. We ought not to get defensive at the idea that we are in fact racist in ways that we're not even aware of. But somehow, because we do not struggle with race or wear white hoods or burn crosses on our neighbor's lawn, we have a hard time seeing that we've comfortably taken Pharaoh's offer and left our brothers and sisters of color behind in Egypt. After World Wars I and II, federal law prohibited veterans who were then classified as status Indians from joining the local chapters of the Royal Canadian Legion. Why didn't their fellow white veterans say, if our brothers can't be a part, then neither will we? Or why is it that we think that the treaties that our government signed with the First Nations years ago, well, those are ancient history. They're impossible to honor today, when we certainly don't believe that our own deeds to property have an expiry date. The other night, our son Eric, who was 20 years old, told me he was going out for a walk. That was after dark. It was around 10 o'clock. And because of the reading that I had been doing, I, I told him to grab his wallet. And he looked at me funny. Of course he looked at me funny. Why would a young white man need to carry ID while walking in his own suburban neighborhood at night? I, I read about... Uh, A black man who doesn't go for a walk in his own neighborhood unless he takes his young daughter or son along with him for safety, for his safety. The world we live in was made by white people for white people. We're socialized into it. We've left Egypt, and we're pretty comfortable about that. But of course, the way of Jesus calls us to stand with our brothers and sisters. And it is, it is our calling all over the scriptures. It's in the Torah. It's in the word of the prophets. It's the application in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's the Great Commission. It's the Spirit's gift and task at Pentecost. But it is a calling that needs legs to walk on. And so here's the hard part. Right? The application. Now what? Well, here's what to do. Some thoughts. I challenge you to take what's called the, uh, the implicit association test. It is an online test. Just Google implicit association test. You'll get to the webpage at, at Harvard University and then choose the test for racial bias. I, I'll, I will send out a, um, uh, I'll send out a link. Um, and I don't want to give away any spoilers 
but it's the only online survey I've ever taken where you get a you have to click that you that you acknowledge the warning that you might deeply disagree with and be unhappy about the results of your test. Because the goal is to begin to understand ourselves. That's step one. Step two, learn by reading and watching. Read books and articles that are written by people of color. Watch movies and documentaries that tell stories of people who do not look like you. You know, they're, they're all over Netflix. I know you're all watching Netflix anyway. Pick good stuff. Right? It's, it's, what Sharon, it's, Lisa, it's what Lisa Sharon Harper calls growing your empathy by placing yourselves in the shoes of others. Third, learn in person. Widen and deepen your relationships with people who do not share your ethnicity. And you, you, can, you can do this uh, um, by, uh, by contacting an agency or a ministry that, that assists refugees. Or seek out a personal through the, the community engagement agencies of the Six Nations. Right? Hear their stories, hear them firsthand. Right? Um, the First Nations has, has uh, residential school survivors uh, that, that, um, that will come and speak. Uh, maybe this is something that, for adult education, we, maybe it's over Zoom that it has to happen. But let's hear the stories. Let's hear them firsthand. Fourth, become active. Harper suggests uh, starting engagement, again, with a Google search. You just enter Hamilton or Brantford or whatever, whatever town you're in, and then a category such as education or housing or healthcare or employment, and then the, uh, the word either organizing or equity or groups, and, and you will get a list. And then show up. Show up virtually or in, or in person as the needs allow, and then follow the lead of the people who are already there. And, and then fifth, you know, make something up. Get creative. Do something of your own initiative. And you know what? I'll, here's my idea. Let's start a movement to raise awareness of the lack of drinking water on First Nations reserves in Canada. You know, less than an hour from here, more than half of the residents of the Six Nations do not have running water in their homes. That is thousands of people. Thousands of people right in our neighborhood don't have running water that's drinkable in their homes. Let's start a movement. I say one day per year, we all shut off the taps. And for 24 hours, we, do, we make do with whatever containers of water we have filled the day before. And, and let's not do it on some warm summer day. Let's do it in the middle of winter. You know, it's, it's not much. But it's something. And we need to do something. Because at the end of the lesson of the Good Samaritan, understanding the message of the call to cross boundaries and help your neighbor, that's, that's not the end of the parable. This is the end of the parable. Go and do likewise. And all God's people said, Amen.